I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Mark 6. Um, I realize you've been sitting for quite a while now, so I'm, I'm just going to pray before I get into the Word. If, if you want to stand as I pray, just to give your legs a little bit of a break, feel free to stand um, as I pray. All right, you all seem, seem content. <laughs> Let me pray. Lord, as we look to your Word now, we ask that by your Spirit, you would speak to our hearts. Lord, help us to understand this passage, this really dark passage, Lord, where immorality is just springing forth. Help us to see your purposes in it. And by your Spirit, Lord, may we, as followers of Christ, seek to truly be faithful to him no matter the cost. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my uh, dad and my father-in-law were uh, planting churches in the Philippines. There was a specific man, I, I don't remember his name, my dad was reminding me last night, um, but we'll just call him Tito. Tito means uncle in Tagalog, so I basically call every Filipino that's older than me Tito or Tita. Um, but my father-in-law was leading the church at this point, my parents had returned back to Canada, and there was something with the building, they were doing some kind of construction work, and this individual, Tito, had always been a thorn in the flesh for both my dad and my father-in-law, and he didn't agree with my father-in-law with what he was doing in regards to the building. He was a very bitter man. He had a grudge towards my father-in-law, and he went to the MPA, which is the National People's Army of the Philippines, which is basically an extremist communist organization who... They basically take out people. And he went to them and actually paid them to take out my father-in-law. Now, thankfully, a few years before that, there was a lady in the church that my dad had led to the Lord. And she was actually married to one of the former leaders in that organization. He was retired. He wasn't a Christian. But he got wind of this because he was still connected to the group. And he went to the group and said, you will not kill the wife, my wife's pastor. And so thankfully, he was not harmed at all. But what's baffling to me in that story is how a grudge can lead someone to want to murder another person. Bitterness can produce murder. And that's kind of what we see here in this passage in Mark 6. Bitterness, a grudge, leads to the murder of John the Baptist. Now, we saw a few weeks ago that Jesus had been rejected by his own people in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And then we saw that he commissioned the 12 disciples with the intention of extending his ministry through, through him or through them in verses 7 to 13. But now we get a scene change. But this scene change in regards to John the Baptist is still related to both Jesus' rejection and the disciples' commission. The scene turns back to John, who at the beginning we saw in Mark 1, prepared the way for the coming of the Lord. He was the one who was called by God to prepare the way for Jesus. But part of the reason for the scene change here in this passage is due to the fact that there's confusion surrounding the identity of Jesus. We see this in verses 14 to 16. 
King Herod heard of it. That is, he heard of all that Jesus was doing, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So King Herod heard of Jesus, for for he had become known. His name was spreading. And there were rumors about the identity of Jesus. Some thought him to be John raised from the dead. Others thought him to be Elijah, which which Malachi 4, 5, the, the, the Old Testament ends with a prophecy in Malachi 4, 5 that talks about the coming of Elijah, the one who will prepare the way for Yahweh. And it's interesting that it's Jesus who declares that John is the, Eli- is the one who is to come. He is the Elijah. In Mark 9, 11 to 13, he says this, and they asked him, that is his disciples, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So so John is the Elijah to come, and yet some people are thinking that Jesus was the Elijah to come. Some also thought him to be a prophet, like the prophets of old who were sent by God to Israel. But we also see Herod's conclusion. We see his thought. Herod had thought that John had been raised from the dead. And I think there's a level of fear on Herod's part because of the emphasis of the text. The emphasis of the text is on the eye, where where Herod says, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. In other words, Herod, I think, is a little bit superstitious at this moment. He's thinking that the man he killed is going to come back and enact some revenge on him. So verses 14 to 16 tells us that John died. Herod alludes to how he died, that he was beheaded. But it's the rest of the story that gives us the details on what actually took place. And really what we see, specifically in verses 17 to 20, is a confrontation between good and and evil. A confrontation between good and evil. Look at verses 17 to 20. For it was Herod who had sent, had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod has John arrested and imprisoned for the sake of his wife, Herodias. Now, Herodias was actually the wife of Herod's brother, Philip, but she left Philip for Herod. So so here we have an adulterous relationship. Now, it's probably good to just briefly speak on the landscape of the Herodian family. There's no other way to describe this dynasty, this family, except as pure evil. King Herod the Great, who is the father of this king, okay? So Herod here in Mark 6 is the son of King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great is the one 
at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus' birth, who tries to have all the children under the age of two, all boys under the age of two in Bethlehem, murdered. That's King Herod the Great. This is his son. So he was the king at the time of Jesus' birth. So he's the father of all these other Herods that you read about in the Gospels and in Acts. And there's no doubt that a bunch of his wickedness was passed on to his sons, at least the ones that survived his wrath. Herod the Great divorced his first wife, then married the Hasmonean princess Mariamna to try to legitimize his claim to the throne. He later had her executed because he suspected that she was plotting against him. Three of his sons he had executed, another wife he had executed, his mother-in-law was executed, all for suspicion of conspiracy. And of course, we know that Herod commanded that all the children on the age of two boys killed in, uh, would be killed in Bethlehem. So vile, so evil was Herod that even the Roman Emperor Augustus had said that he'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. Probably a greater chance of survival. So that's the father of this Herod we're reading about here in Mark 6. And Herod the Great, of course, we know he dies, and his kingdom is then divided between his sons. So you can only imagine how sinful and messed up this family is when you have a father like that. So that's a little bit of the family. So Herod had John arrested for Herodias' sake. Why? Well, John confronted them. He confronted them over their wickedness. As he said to them, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He was calling them out on their adultery. See, even though Herod wasn't a Jew, John had no issue confronting him on his immorality. They were breaking the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments. And because John had done this, Herodias became hostile toward John. She had a grudge and she wanted him dead. You know, this is often what happens when righteousness confronts unrighteousness. Darkness hates light. Evil hates the good. Jesus spoke of this in John 3, 19-20, where he said, And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You know, it's interesting to me that many professing Christians will often say things like, if we just lived like Jesus, the world would be more accepting of us. Really? The world crucified Jesus for the things he did and said. You see, to be faithful to the light, to be faithful to the truth and righteousness, to be faithful as a disciple to Jesus will put you in conflict with this sinful world. Because Jesus was in conflict with this sinful world. That's exactly Jesus' argument in Matthew 10, 24-25, where he's speaking about that his, his disciples are not above the master, right? He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. 
It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, that is, if they've accused Jesus of using demonic powers to cast out demons, how much more will they malign those of his household? How much more will they malign his disciples? See, if we are going to be faithful to Jesus, we will come into conflict with this world. So John confronts them over their sin, and she wants him dead because of it. But strangely enough, though Herod has him arrested and imprisoned, he's not willing to have John killed. And the reason we're told is that he actually feared John, because he was a righteous and holy man. That's such an interesting thought. Here is an evil man who fears a righteous, holy man. See, sometimes we forget this as Christians, but evil fears goodness. Often, we think it's those who are good that tend to fear evil, but evil truly does fear the good. When you think of encounters in the scripture, with when sinful people encounter pure goodness, that is God, what happens? What happens when evil comes into the presence of divine, perfect, pure goodness? People fall down trembling in utter fear before the holiness of God. Why? Because their vileness has just beheld God's holiness and goodness. And though humans do not experience that to the same degree with other humans, I do believe that an evil man can recognize the power of a righteous man. But not only did Herod fear John, he seems to have been entertained and perplexed by John. As the text says, right? Um, when you go down to verse 20, he says, When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. You know, I would argue there's actually a lot of people like Herod. They're happy to hear good preaching. They're even entertained by it. But it leaves no lasting impact on them. They don't believe it applies to them, though they're happy to listen. Even the prophets in the, the Old Testament experienced this. Ezekiel was, what, was one of those prophets, and, and God, God warned Ezekiel that this would happen, that people would just listen to him for pure entertainment's sake. This is what we read in Ezekiel 33, 30-33. As for you, son of man, that is Ezekiel, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one, say to one another, each to his brother, come and, and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and they, they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act, their heart is set on their gain and behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes and come at will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Might that possibly describe you? You're happy to hear God's truth proclaimed. You're, you're entertained by it. You're, you're drawn to the charisma of certain kinds of preachers. But you could care less to actually want to obey God's word. 
The word has no lasting effect in your life. You don't seek to obey what you, your, you hear or you have your life changed by what you hear. See, sadly, church for many people and the preaching of God's word, the preaching of God's word today is more about entertainment than it is worship. So Herod, though evil, he's actually protecting John from his evil wife. But Herodias was on the lookout. She was on the lookout for an opportunity to accomplish her evil intent against John. And that's what we see in verse 21 to 27. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison. Herod's having a birthday party. He's having a great banquet. He's invited the elites of the society, the nobles, the military commanders, the leading men of Galilee, the upper class. And during this party, which would have involved all kinds of depravity, most likely, we're not totally sure, but most likely, based upon the the tone of the text, Herodias had her daughter come in and dance, possibly for the purpose of manipulating and deceiving Herod. Now, you can imagine the kind of dance she was performing. I don't think I need to spell that out for us this morning. This whole scene is a scene of human depravity at its finest. Remember this. Herod is in an adulterous relationship with Herodias. Herodias' daughter comes in and performs a dance for him and for his guests. So Herod not only takes his brother's wife, but now he's lusting after his niece. He was so pleased, so consumed with lustful appetite that he lost all reason and was willing to offer her half his kingdom. Now, most likely that was hyperbole, but he was He lost his reason. He lost his rationale. He made a vow to her. Do you see the irrationality of sin here in this passage? Specifically in the context of the sin of lust. See, lust makes both men and women do utterly irrational, foolish things. People are willing to leave their own children and spouse because they're lustfully consumed with another person. So Herod makes this offer, probably with a lot of alcohol in his system and consumed with lust. And Herodias' daughter goes to her mother and schemes with her. And here Herodias sees her opportunity to kill John. Here her grudge will take on its full manifestation. She tells her daughter to demand the head of John the Baptist. She involves her daughter in her own depravity. But what's shocking is it seems like her daughter gladly 
participates. Like mother, like daughter, like father, like son. And how does Herod respond to the request? He's so concerned about his own reputation that he permits this injustice. Because one, he doesn't want to break his oath. And two, he's afraid of what his fellow partiers will think of him if he goes back on his word. In other words, Herod is not just an adulterer. He's not just a man full of lust. He's a coward and he's a crowd pleaser. He has no moral conviction in his bones. Dare I say, a lot of political leaders are like that today. Merely cowards and crowd pleasers. So he immediately has John beheaded. And his head is brought to the girl on a platter and then given to Herodias. This was the end of John's life. The great prophet of God. This story captures so powerfully the sinfulness and depravity of humanity. Within this one story, you see adultery, sexual immorality, bitterness, revenge, cowardice, fear of man, pride, lust, and murder. This story is just flowing with sin. And it's a reminder to us of what the human heart is capable of when it's not surrendered to the will of God. You see, we as Christians should never be surprised at the wicked things human beings do. In fact, if you're a faithful Bible reader, the Bible paints not only a clear picture of what God is like, but also what humanity is like when they are left to themselves. There are no boundaries for the depravity of humanity apart from God's restraining of evil. You see, the Bible doesn't shy away from displaying the full depths of the depravity of the human heart. And therefore, hear this, we shouldn't be surprised. Yes, we should be appalled. Yes, we should be disturbed. But we shouldn't be surprised when we see horrific evils like the murder of George Floyd or the murder of Ahmed Arbery. We shouldn't be shocked that there are still things like racism in our world. We shouldn't be surprised that just this year alone, there have been over 21 million deaths of pre-born babies globally through the abortion industry. We shouldn't be surprised that there are thousands of young girls and boys who are sexually trafficked in our own nation. We shouldn't be surprised at the sinfulness of humanity. Yes, we should be appalled. Yes, we should be grieved. Yes, we should have righteous indignation. Yes, we should cry out for justice. But as Christians, we ought not be surprised by the depravity of the human person. Our blood is filled with sin. It flows in our veins. The depravity of humanity is so severe that it required none other than the death of the pure, holy Son of God in order for sin to be atoned. If you want to see how ugly your sin is, look to the crucified Jewish man hanging on a cross, mocked, flogged, spat on. That's what sin costs. You see, what Herod needed... What Herodias needed, what her daughter needed, was what John had. 
The gift of the forgiveness of sins found only in Jesus Christ, the one who died for the penalty of sins. And what every single one of us here in this room needs is that same gift, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, the one who laid down his life for our sins. You see, Herod needed the forgiveness of the man that he would later mock just before his crucifixion. In Luke 23, 8-11, we're told that Jesus is actually brought to this same Herod. And this is what we read. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. See that? He just wanted to be entertained. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate for him to be crucified. That's this man. He needed the forgiveness of the man he mocked. Now you might be saying, well, I would never do what Herodias did or what Herod did. But I want to ask you this. What was necessary for Herodias to kill John? Simply a grudge. What was necessary for Herod to approve of John's beheading? Simply the fear of man and a commitment to his own reputation. See, I have no doubt that everyone in this room has held a grudge. I have no doubt that everyone in this room has compromised at some point in their life because of what others have thought of you. Yes, you haven't done what these characters did, but each of us have felt the same things that led them to do what they did. In other words, the desires for that kind of depravity to happen resides in each of us. And if you're honest with yourself, you too are tainted with sin and in need of forgiveness and the salvation that Jesus offers. So Herod has John executed. And after he's executed, and after, after he's executed, sorry, Herod has John executed, and after he's executed his own disciples, his own disciples come and retrieve the body of John, and they lay his body in a tomb. Now, here's what I want to ask. Why does Mark record this story for us? Why does he place it where it is in this passage? Because based upon the timeline, this had already actually happened, but Mark intentionally places it here in the narrative. Why? What's the point of Mark giving so much detail about the death of John the Baptist? The gospel is about Jesus, not John. Well, remember, at the beginning of Mark 6, you have Jesus rejected in Nazareth. And then he commissions his disciples to carry out his ministry work. And so the commissioning of the twelve is sandwiched between Jesus' rejection and John's beheading. And if you look at verse 30, the disciples return and they told Jesus all that they had done and taught right after we hear the story of John's beheading. See, for the disciples, there was excitement. They were doing all these wonderful things for Jesus while John got beheaded. 
You see, what Mark wants to make clear is that as disciples of Christ, though they will do great things for Christ, just as Christ did, they will be rejected as Christ was rejected in Nazareth, and they will even lose their lives for the sake of Christ, just as John was beheaded for the sake of Christ. You see, one of the themes of Mark's gospel is the true nature of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. One of the clear pictures of what it means to follow Jesus is to be a participant in the sufferings of Jesus. Those who claim the name of Christ must be willing to bear the sufferings of Christ. As Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. You see, Mark wants to make it abundantly clear from this story of John's beheading that following Jesus will cost you. Faithfulness to Jesus doesn't guarantee a peaceful death on your deathbed, but it could mean being buried without your head. John the Baptist was nothing but a man of obedience and faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. He was set apart by God to prepare the way for Jesus. He was a preacher of repentance and forgiveness. Jesus said of John that there is no man before that is greater in the kingdom than John the Baptist. So you would think that if he's that glorious in the kingdom of God, that him leaving this world would be one of glory and, and spectacle. But instead, all he got was an axe to the head. See, faithfulness to Jesus doesn't always end well. If you will stand for the truth, if you will stand for righteousness, if you will stand for what Christ stands for, know that there will be repercussions. You see, church history tells us that all of the 12 disciples, except John the Apostle, were martyred for their faith. And John was exiled to the island of Patmos. James, the brother of John, John the, John, uh, the Apostle, not the Baptist, we're told in Acts 12 too, that King Herod, now this is now the, the son of this king, okay? So that King Herod, the son of the one in Mark 6, has put to death James by the sword, like father, like son. And Paul, of course, was killed in Rome. History tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. And Jesus speaks of Peter's death in, in John 21, 18 to 19, where he restores him to fellowship. And this is what we read. Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you did not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after, this say, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. See, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not merely bearing the name of Christ that will lead to persecution. It's whether or not you will live a godly life in Christ Jesus. There were many churches in Germany during Nazi rule that bore the name of Christ. But they did not suffer because they aligned themselves with Hitler out of fear. The question is, will you live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Will you count the costs? A godly life will be a determining factor on how this world responds to you. You see, John's story in the narrative ends in beheading. 
But we know as Christians theologically that this story doesn't end in death, but life. It is God who declared in Psalm 116, verse 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Death can only be precious if death doesn't have the final word over God's children. You see, in one sense, you could say that John was never actually truly harmed by King Herod. He was never harmed by King Headed. Beheaded, yes, but not harmed. What do I mean by that? Well, let me quote for you from the great philosopher Socrates. Socrates made one of the most outrageous claims, and at first glance, it seems absurd. But if you contemplate what, you said, what he said, you'll discover that he was right. In fact, Jesus says something very similar. Socrates said the one thing he was certain of was this. No evil can ever possibly happen to a good man in this world or the next. Did you hear that? No evil can ever possibly happen to a good man in this world or the next. But John was beheaded by evil people. Countless good men and women have been harmed by evil. Did, did Socrates have his head in the clouds? No, he didn't. Socrates understood the essence of a human. It's the soul of a man. It's the inner self of a person. You see, no other person can bring any kind of harm to my soul unless I allow it. No evil can be done to my soul by another person. One can harm my body, but one cannot harm my soul if I am a righteous man or a righteous woman. See, Herod killed John unjustly, but he harmed only his own soul, not John's. He harmed his own soul. Herodias harmed her soul, but they did not harm John's soul. Yes, they harmed him physically, but they could not touch his soul. You see, it's the wicked who harm their own souls. Jesus alludes to this idea in Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Brothers and sisters, the righteous, though they may experience physical harm, their souls are untouched by the wicked. The wicked are the ones who harm their own souls. No evil can ever possibly harm a good man or a good woman. Church, are you prepared to count the costs? Will you, like John the Baptist, stand for the cause of God and be willing to face the consequences, knowing that no evil can truly, can truly harm you? The movie, uh, A Hidden Life, I'm going to absolutely butcher his name, Jay's probably going to laugh at me, um, that tells the story of Franz Jagerstatter. Um, he was an Austrian farmer, and he was a devout Catholic. It's a beautiful movie. When Austria surrendered to the Nazis, the men of Austria were called to fight for Hitler. And Franz, being the godly man he was, refused. Even his own townspeople turned against him. Even his own priests encouraged him to compromise. 
And in the movie, you, you see the tension that he faces between choosing survival by compromising or choosing integrity and righteousness, righteousness which will inevitably lead to his death. And in the end, he chooses integrity and is murdered by the Nazis. They harmed him physically, but his soul was at peace. After I watched that film, I wrote on my notepad these thoughts. A man or woman may be faced to choose between survival or integrity. The latter will allow a man to face his death in peace. Brothers and sisters, for a long time in Canada, we have not really had to worry about persecution. And though I don't want to be a fear monger, I do believe that darker days are ahead for the church in North America. I believe we should hope for the best, but be prepared for the worst. Our faith is going to be tested in the coming years, and each of us need to build the conviction that we will follow Jesus no matter the cost. Are you willing to bear the name bigot? Are you willing to lose your job for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to give up a specific career because that career path will be closed off to Christians? We already see this tension going on in the medical field and also in the law world. I pray that we might have the same attitude of the apostles after they were beaten by the religious leaders in Acts 5, 40-41. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced. They didn't grumble. They didn't complain about the situation. They didn't complain that their freedoms were, were being taken away. No, no. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor the name for the name of Jesus Christ. May we be found worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. May we have the confidence of King David who declared in Psalm 18, 6-7, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit, help us as your children to truly count the cost and to fully surrender to Christ no matter what it may cost us. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, I pray that they would count the cost this morning, that they would take up their cross and begin to follow Jesus, the Savior and King of the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.